0: reading this morning comes from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 to 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be re- revealed in the last time this is the word of the Lord Thank you uh, for leading in prayer and in reading Eric and as you all notice I'm sure we have finally broken free from verses one and two uh, after a month of studying the first two verses of first Peter. we are finally making our way into the the body of the of the letter, and we're studying first Peter together because as I've said over and over again this uh, this letter is particularly relevant to our cultural moment. Now, I would like to say that the entire Bible is relevant to our uh, cultural moment, even the very Old Testament, like books like Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, these, these books that can often be very strange to us. They have a relevance, but it can be a little bit difficult to, to understand what that relevance is. With First Peter, it's very, very clear very, very quickly. Remember, uh, by way of of recap for you, um, Peter is writing to Greek Christians throughout what is now known as Turkey. Back then, it was known as Asia Minor. And these are Greek Christians who are facing trouble. They are facing pressure they are facing discrimination they are certainly facing social pressure to give up some of the things that they believe this is probably pre what's called imperial persecution meaning this is just prior to the time when Nero unleashes a, a, a A concerted effort to persecute the Christians of Rome and the surrounding environs in his in his Empire these are Christians who have decided that Jesus is their one and only Lord and because of that they are facing all kinds of pressure to give up this belief the, in First Peter 3, uh, Peter says, uh, In your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. That is what uh, Christians are called to do, to, to say that Jesus Christ is their only Savior and Lord. Now, if they had simply said Jesus was a Lord, everything would have been fine. If the early Christians had simply said, yes, Jesus is one of the lords that you can believe in and you can put your trust in, they would have gotten along quite well with the people uh, that they lived around. Because they all believed that everybody had their own lord, their own master. And certainly, yes, the, the emperor himself was the son of God and so was their ultimate lord. But they had lots of different lords that they could believe in. It was a kind of situation where whatever works for you was fine for you. Go ahead, believe that. Kind of like today, people are quite comfortable with you saying, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. They say, hey, great, for you. That's awesome. Jesus is your homeboy. Jesus is your bro. Jesus is your king. That's fine for you, as long as you don't say what the early Christians were saying, which is Jesus is everybody's Lord and Savior. In his early ministry the Apostle Peter was confronted by the Sanhedrin. And they had told him that, they ought, that he ought not preach this gospel. And what was this gospel that he was preaching? He was saying to them, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved That is Jesus Christ. And that was precisely the sticking point with the people whom the early Greek Christians were living with. Because, you see, if everybody can choose their own Lord and Savior, if you can have your King and I can have my King and you can have your Savior and I can have my Savior, then we can all just be happy. And actually, if you think about it, we all ultimately get to be our own masters, because you see, if every savior is the same and you can choose yours and I can choose mine, really what 's happening is is we are being our own master, our own savior, we are deciding for ourselves who we think. God actually is but here comes the true God of the Bible and he says to you there's only one real God and you all are called to submit to that real God I have revealed myself to you in my son Jesus Christ who is the one who lived for you and died for you and rose for you and there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved and therefore The only option left for you is to submit to his lordship. That's the teaching of the Bible. And that does not go over very well with the neighbors and co-workers and uh, community members of ancient Asia Minor that the Greek Christians were living among. And it doesn't always go over very well in our day and age either, among your colleagues at work, among your friends on your sports teams or your community group or whatever. And so here's Peter preparing these Christians to deal with the rejection they're going to face, to deal with the oppression that they're going to face, and eventually even to deal with the persecution that they're going to face. And just so you know... I did a little research this week. Out of curiosity, how many Christians do you think are facing outright persecution around the world today? I actually want someone to throw out a number. <laughs> Pardon? Oh, I, 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 need a, I don't need a percentage, I need a number. I can't do that kind of math, Kim, that is so unfair. Turn this back on me five hundred thousand seven hundred million, 700 million. <laughs> actually it's just over 300 million christians around the world today are estimated to be facing outright persecution and so this this letter is supremely relevant for our day and age and and here's the thing just because you're not facing outright bald-faced persecution that doesn't mean that you are not going to face trials and sorrow and pain and temptation and sickness and ultimately even death. About 20 years ago, a so-called Christian writer wrote a very popular book called Your Best Life Now. The Apostle Peter is, descri- is preparing you to face what may be your worst life now. A hard life, a difficult life, a sometimes overwhelmingly painful and dark life. How inspiring on this Family Day weekend, isn't it? Well, hold on to yourselves, friends, because in verses 3 through 5, the Apostle Peter gives us words that strengthen us and empower us to face even our worst life now. He gives us a hope in the midst of our suffering. He gives us a hope in the midst of our fear that no amount of suffering and no amount of trial and pain and and, uh, hardship can actually take away. No one can escape hardship. Even people with the most charmed lives cannot escape some kind of suffering. Read the biographies of celebrities. I mean, don't, because it's kind of a waste of time. But uh, if you do read the biographies of celebrities, what you discover is people who are the beautiful people, people who are the, the successful people, people who have made it to the top, you know? They got everything. They got it all. Underneath it all, their lives are still tragic messes because... We live in a fallen and broken world, and we are sinners, and therefore our lives, everybody here, your life, from one perspective, it is a tragic mess. But, but Peter, in these verses, he offers hope that no amount of suffering can overwhelm. And that's what we're going to look at together in verses 3 to 5. First of all, Peter provides for us a motive for our hope in the midst of hardship it begins with this doxology praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ now many scholars believe that those words actually form the very earliest christian confession and right after he says praise be to the god and father of our lord jesus christ makes this early christian confession he shows us where that praise is rooted he says in his great mercy he has given us new birth, in his great mercy. In other words, the reason for our praise, the reason for us blessing God, the reason for us celebrating our God for who he is, is because of this thing called his mercy. And this word is really, really quite important. God, Peter says, is merciful. And for many of you, that sounds like, yeah, adieu." But if you stop and think about it, you need to be reminded of this. Because there's a lot of people in this world who they think that that God is angry, that God is judgmental, that God is kind of vindictive. You read through the Old Testament and and, and you see that people are constantly uh, facing the consequences for their sin and God is constantly, it seems, so-called displeased with them. God is judgy, people say. And so, of course, if you believe that that's what God is fundamentally like, that he's fundamentally kind of cantankerous, you're not going to praise him, are you? Not at all. But here, Peter is reminding us that God is actually fundamentally compassionate. You know, when Moses is up on the mountain... And he says, God, please, I need you to reveal your person to me. I need you to reveal your character to me. And God says, I can't show you my face. Because if I do that, you'll die. But I'll put you in this rock, and I'll pass by you, and I'll let you see my back. And as he passes by, you know what he says? He says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate one, slow to anger and abounding in love. That's God's fundamental character, Peter is telling us. And it's this mercy... This compassion that sees our misery, that sees how messed up we are, how lost we are, how often very despairing we are. It's that that motivates God, that moves him to act. Think of it this way. We often talk about God's grace, right? His undeserved favor. Well, God's grace addresses our guilt. We are sinners who have broken God's law. We have chosen to be our own lords and saviors. We have chosen to make our own decisions about what what is right and wrong. And so we have broken God's law. We have broken relationship with Him. And God's grace is Him not giving us what we deserve for that, but in fact giving us the opposite of what we deserve for that. He gives us His undeserved favor instead of our deserved punishment. But mercy, friends, mercy deals with our misery. There's a place where Peter says, Remember that at at that time, speaking to Greeks who were converted to Christianity, he says to them in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ and without hope and without God in the world. Our world is in a miserable state, friends. You know, a week can't go by. With me not reading another article explaining another study that has demonstrated the hopelessness and the persistent feeling of sadness that Gen Z people carry in today's world. We live in the most advanced civilization in history. Do you understand that you, living in your house, you are living in greater luxury than the monarchs, than King David, than King Tutankhamun, than the King Richard and King Henry, than all the great kings of the last 2,000 years. You are living in greater luxury than they lived in. We are healthier, we are wealthier, we are safer than any civilization in history. And yet, between 2009 and 2021, uh, high school children have gone from having... How do I say this? High school children having a persistent feeling of sadness and hopelessness has gone from 26% of the population to 44% of the population, all while risky behavior has been dropping. What do I mean by that? They're having less unsafe sex or less sex altogether outside of a relationship. They're using less drugs generally. They're drinking and abusing less alcohol generally. So so their behavior is improving. It's getting better. It's getting safer. And yet their sense of hopelessness about life is simply increasing. Um, wars and conflicts around the world have doubled since 1990. Religious persecution is on the rise. I just told you that over 300 million Christians around the world are facing open persecution right now. Anti-Semitism is on the rise, partly because of what's happening in Gaza right now the opioid crisis is on the news constantly there are people dying every day from overdoses from, 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 from drugs that the drug dealers I don't understand why this is how it works but drug dealers are lacing the drugs that people use with drugs that are actually fatal and so day after day you hear another story uh, another tragic story of someone dying horribly because of that politics is getting more and more divided where your goodness is being identified with what, with which political party you support. And on a just more general level, one comedian put it this way. He said, everyone everywhere is super mad about everything all the time. What did this? Sin did this. It's not because your federal government sucks or because the medical community or the, the, the hospital system the medical care system in Ontario is broken sure, maybe, maybe the federal government sucks maybe the Medicare system is broken that may be true, but that's not why the world's a disaster that's not why your life is a disaster it's because of our sin. It's because of human rebellion against our creator. It's because we are self-centered and turned in on ourselves. And we care nothing about those around us. And when we do, we only care about those around us when they can give us what we need for ourselves. We are fundamentally self-centered beings. And in rebellion against God, we are ruthless. But here's the thing. God refused to let us wallow in that ruthlessness. He didn't say, hey, human race, you made your bed lie in it. He showed us mercy, Peter said. He sent Jesus to rescue us. He sent Jesus to take our rebellion and our sin and and our infirmities and carry it all to the cross and die for it. Which should cause you to praise, cause you to look at God and say, My Father, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Father too. You would show me that kind of mercy. And so I bless you. This is the motive of our hope, the mercy of God. Okay, what's the means of our hope? What's the, the way we receive this hope? Well, Paul, con- Peter sorry, continues... In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, we've talked about this multiple times. New birth, being born again. This is the heart of the Christian faith. You see, becoming a Christian is not making a new start in life. It's being given a new life to start. And we must never, ever, ever, ever forget that because very often people inside and outside the church believe that what being a Christian means fundamentally is turning over a new leaf. It's behavioral change. It's behavioral modification. People look at their lives, they say it's a mess, it's a disaster. They see their neighbor who seems to love their husband and seems to care for their kids and seems to have a lot less drama in their lives and they say, hmm, maybe I should act the way they act and maybe I'll have less problems in my life. And so they straighten up and fly right. They get religion. No, 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 a thousand times no, friends... Becoming a Christian means being born again. means that you are dead in your sin and no amount of doing good is going to change that. You're dead in your sin. What you need is a new heart. And that new heart can only be given to you by the one who raises you from death to life. Notice what it says. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What does that mean? When you become a Christian... You are united to Jesus. So that what literally happened to him, Jesus died on the cross, and then he rose again three days later from the dead. What literally happened to him happens to you spiritually. You have died to sin, the Apostle Paul says. And you have been raised to to be a slave to righteousness. And so you have a new being a new heart, a new root, a new radix that actually responds to God's call to live in faith and obedience. This is the means. We were born again. This, this is not something you did yourself. Nobody has birthed themselves. Everybody arrives in this world have been, having been birthed from their mother and having been caught by someone. And then boom, there you are. And so God is the one who, who, who initiates and accomplishes this new birth in your heart. And let me just say to those of you who really find this weird, there are, there are non-Christians at this church every Sunday, and I praise God for that. And, and you hear what I'm talking about, and it sounds totally freakishly weird to you, and I, I understand. I understand. So let me just make it super simple for you. The Bible teaches that you can't care about anything related to the things of God unless God does something in you first. So if you're here and it's like the fifth time and you're like, I'm just, I don't know why I keep coming back. It's because God is working in you right now. He is the one who's created the curiosity. He is the one who has created the desire. He is the one who's created the interest in you. And so don't, don't stop <laughs> and Don't worry. Am I born again? Am I not born again? When was I born again? How do I know I was born again? Did it happen at my baptism? Did it happen at a confirmation? Did it happen? When did it happen? 90% of the people in this room don't know when they were born again. They can't give you their birth certificate date. All they know is they love Jesus. And does it really matter when you started? What really matters is if you do. Now, what is the nature of this hope? We've had the, the motive. We've had the means. We've, now, what's the nature? What's, what's this thing like? And, and Paul describes it as an inheritance. This hope is an inheritance. Look at it again, verse 4. Into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Paul, Peter is describing this inheritance and, and what he means by it is, is it's the final phase of your salvation. The Bible talks about salvation in a bunch of different ways. You ever notice that? Maybe it's confused you. It talks about how I was saved and then it says we're being saved and then it says we will be saved and like where am I in all of this? Have I been saved? Am I being saved? Will I be saved? What's going on? Just to clarify, the Bible talks about you being saved when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, meaning when you finally say, I am not going to be Lord of my life. I know that I need Jesus to be Lord of my life. I cannot make myself acceptable to God by my own goodness, by my own wisdom, by my own intelligence, by my own work ethic. None of that's going to do it. I have to put my trust entirely on Jesus Christ. That's called the moment of being justified. That's the moment of your salvation. And what it means is, is that you are at that moment, you are freed from the penalty of sin. God no longer condemns you for your sin. He gives you his grace. Remember, his undeserved favor. When the Bible describes you as being saved, it's very often describing this this process by which your sinful nature is slowly being overpowered by this new nature that the Holy Spirit has planted in you. It's called sanctification, where you are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, which is essentially, more and more you are loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, and you're loving your neighbor as yourself. That's a summary of the process of sanctification. And it starts to, to... The way it it looks in your life is through obedience. More and more you want to obey your savior and less and less do you want to live for those old idols that you have chased. But then the Bible describes your salvation as something that is coming. So you're freed from the penalty of sin, you're being freed from the power of sin and then one day you will finally be free from the presence of sin. This is at the last day when Jesus raises us, those of us who have died, before his return. He raises us from the dead and those of us who are here at his return. He transforms us into the beings that we were always meant to be free from pain and suffering and sin and sorrow, etc. Everything that you experience now, trials, sorrow, temptation, disappointment, sickness, death, all those things will be gone. But here's the thing. The thing that you are most freed from, that you should be most excited about, is being freed finally from your sin. See, what we often do when we look at the being saved, finally being saved from the presence of sin, we think about suffering. We're like, oh, my back will finally work right. That's a pretty superficial salvation but we may also say well my my mental health challenges will finally be over or my 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 unrealized dreams that i had in this life that i carry with me as pain and sorrow they will finally be uh, realized in the next life But friends, all those other things, all those other hurts and pains and sorrows and disappointments, they're all rooted in sin. And the thing that we should be most excited about, the thing we should be most longing for, the thing that should most excite us is the, the, the possibility that one day, finally, we will be freed from the presence of sin. Not just out there in the world around us, but inside of us, in our own hearts. If you take sin seriously as a Christian, you know that being a follower of Jesus is a fight. It is a constant fight. You have these desires that pop up inside you. You have these temptations outside of you. You have the devil trying to oppress you and whisper into your ear, you're not good enough. You can't be a Christian. You don't deserve God's love. And you're fighting and fighting and fighting for faith day in and day out. And sometimes you win and you go to bed and you say, I had a good day today. I didn't click on that website once. I had a good day today. I didn't yell at my rotten teenager once. I had a good day today. I worked really hard all day and I didn't slack off once. And many, many times you go to bed and you lose. And you say, Man, I suck. I hurt my kids. Rotten as they may be, it's my fault that we went to bed crying because I was harsh. I hurt my wife because I did click on that website. I hurt my husband because I did resent him. And I hurt my Savior because he died for this stuff, and I'm still holding on to it. What's wrong with me? Oh, friends, that's all going to be over. It's all going to be over. Your proclivities are going to be redeemed. Your sinful longings are going to be cut out, finally torn up. And the guilt and the shame that still raises its head in your life in the here and now, it will disappear forever and ever and ever. And all it will ever be for you was a a distant memory of some past life that you can't even really understand anymore because you've spent the last billion years in perfection. Celebrating that perfection. And so Peter calls this hope a living hope. A living hope. Why? Because it's a hope that's not rooted in this life. Friends, this life is dying. This life is dying. This world is dying. The next life is the eternal everlasting life. Why why do you think Peter says we have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us and it will never perish. It will never spoil. It will never ever fade. This is a certainty that, that you can hold on to to face the troubles of today because it's guaranteed. Given the weight of the Subject matter, I don't know if this is an appropriate illustration, but I'm going to use it anyway. Uh, In the 90s, there was a television show that, while I was in university, my dorm mates and I, we watched quite religiously. It was called The X-Files. Some of you guys know that. I've been re-watching The X-Files recently. Jessica hates it because she doesn't like the show, and then she doesn't get to watch anything with me. Pray for her. (laughs) Between season five and season six of this show, there was a movie. If you want to understand season six, you really need to watch the movie. It's not absolutely necessary, but you should. And so I watched the movie. And I was so bored because... Whenever there was a scene that was tense, the lead characters, Scully and Mulder, were at risk of dying because the aliens were doing this or because the nasty secret government people were doing that. And you thought, oh no, maybe Mulder's gonna die or maybe Scully's gonna die. You knew they weren't gonna die because they're back in season six. And so the outcome was guaranteed. And I found the movie kind of boring then. But here, friends, you're going through stuff. And there are times when you are barely hanging on to Jesus by your fingernails, and you're like, am I going to sustain this? Am I going to am I going to hold on to this? And what Peter is showing us is that our inheritance, you see, the outcome, it is absolutely certain because it's not in this world. This world is full of dying hopes. Haven't you had them? Your whole life is built on one hope after another, failing you, so you move on to the next one. When you're a kid, you want to be a professional YouTuber, and you're going to be famous. And so you set up your YouTube channel and your four friends watch it and nobody else picks it up. And you go, well, that's one dead dream. Oh, but I'm very good at sports. So you put your hope in your sports and I'm going to be a professional baseball player or football player or volleyball player or whatever. But then you realize that, that you didn't grow. You, you were growing and you stopped growing and then all those other people kept growing and that's pretty lame. And now, even though you're really good at the sport, the net's way up here and so it's irrelevant. There's another dream that died. So you put your hope in your career. You say, I'm gonna go to school. I'm gonna get into a good school. I'm gonna get a good degree. And I am gonna kill it at work. But then you apply and discover that the world is full of people like you who are really good at school and really determined at work. And so you don't go as fast up the, the ladder as you hoped. So you say, well, then I'm gonna I'm gonna find my hope in romance. I'm gonna meet someone and we're gonna love each other and we're gonna, you know, we're gonna sing fast car together, you know, Tracy Chapman's song that's really popular again. And it's just gonna be us against the world, and then for some reason that person's pretty awesome for the first few years of marriage, and then they're just like, eh, I guess we're chugging along together. where the where the where the where'd the romance go? Where'd the spark go? Well, then i 'll raise awesome kids that 's what i 'll do and i 'll do what countless people do is i 'll put my kids in in sports and and I will hope that they become really awesome at it so then i 'm not just i 'm not the great soccer player that everybody 's cheering on. My son is, and that 's pretty good because I go to my I go to my son 's games, and so I get to sort of get get a bit of that glow that he 's receiving it, 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 it glows on me too and then your kid says i don 't really want to play anymore, and you go, what? Wow. I can go on and on, friends. The point is this. They all die, one after another. Look at verse 24, down at the end of this chapter. The Apostle Paul says this about you and me and our hopes in this world. This is Peter, not Paul. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever there it is that's the hope listen you cannot live without this kind of hope you will wither without a hope that endures through this life into the next one it will enable you to face anything I, some of you may have heard of a guy by the name of Viktor frankl he was a jewish psychologist who who spent time in the concentration camps during world war ii And people during that time, as you know, they suffered horrible, horrible, horrendous, nightmarish things in these camps. And he wrote about his experiences. Listen to what he said. This guy's not a believer. A Jewish atheist, in fact. But this is what he says. The prisoner who had lost his faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual health and hold he let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. Usually it began with a prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and wash or to go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by, any, by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own excreta, and nothing bothered him anymore. And they would die. Hopelessness leads to death. That's what Frankel discovered. And, and he said, you know, others... They had a hope that helped them get through the concentration camp. They hoped that, that they would, they would if they could live, they might be reunited with their family, their health might be restored, you know? Maybe they could return to their profession, maybe they would get the, the, the wealth that had been taken to them or taken from them by the Nazis. maybe they would get that back, and they would be freed. But after liberation, they would go home and the jobs weren't there, the families were gone, the community had been dis- destroyed. And they would go into a deep depression. And many of them took their own lives because their hope was shattered. Peter says, look, if you're a Christian, you don't have to suffer that kind of fate. Because your hope is living. It will never, ever, ever die. It will never be taken away. Look at at what it says in verse 5. Peter says, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Shielded by God's power. Now, that word shield is actually a little bit weak. It means to be locked up in a garrison so that you are safe, completely safe from attack. But, But think about this. Think about this, friends. Think about this. When you are in the midst of it, When you are in the belly of the beast, when you are in the darkness where spiritually your hand could be right in front of you but you can't see it because it is so stinking dark right there, when the only thing you can cry out is, God, why? Same thing Jesus cried when he was on the on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? When when you know that theologically, maybe that's wrong, but, but it's the only thing that you can spit out because you are so desperately lost in the midst of your suffering. You ask yourself, will I hold on or will I be like Job who, or, or will I be like Job's wife who came to Job when he had had his family taken away, had his wealth taken away, had his health taken away. She looked at him and said, why don't you just curse God and die? And you think to yourself, I'm terrified that that might happen to me, that I might actually curse God and die what will happen? Peter says no you are shielded you are locked up in the garrison you are safe from outside attack but you are also safe from your own cowardly retreat from him he protects your faith from the outside attacks but he also protects you You, from your own stupidity. These are the unblushing promises, friends. These are the unblushing promises of this passage of God's salvation for your soul. Now, let me close with this. Suffering, hardship, pain, it will come, yes. Yeah, it'll come. Nobody escapes it. These blessings are available to you but only only if the salvation that Jesus has won for you on the cross is the most precious thing to you. It has to be the most important thing to you. See so your inheritance is life with Jesus in paradise. Is that what you want more than anything else? So many people, when they think of of dying, Christians, when they think of dying, their greatest joy is the prospect of being reunited with loved ones. And with all due respect, my friends, you don't get it yet. The greatest joy is to actually Walk into the gates of the new creation and see him in the flesh. When you can walk up to him and you can fall down at his feet and weep tears of joy like that woman did in Luke 7 because you have been forgiven so much, you love so much. That has to be your greatest, deepest, most profound longing. You know, C.S. Lewis once said that we human beings we're so foolish. We're, we're like little kids in the street making mud pies. You know, it rains and then the sand and stuff. Oh, most of you guys maybe aren't allowed to do this, but we did this. You know, you find all the mud that's in the gutters and you start playing with it and you make all these mud pies and it's awesome. And 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 you know, your mom or dad comes up to you and says, "Hey." Uh, How about we go to the beach where the waves are huge and the sand is endless, and I'll bring all the toys and it'll be amazing. And you say, I like this because you don't know what it's like to go to the beach. Friends, our inheritance so outstrips even the, the most profound pleasure this life has to offer. Let that sink in, meditate on that. Frankel, you know, he said that the ones who truly overcame Auschwitz, they were those who had a fixed reference point beyond the world. They held on to what was beyond the grasp of death and destruction. He said, life is a concentration camp that tears open a soul and exposes its depths and its foundations. But you, don't, you need not be afraid of that, friends. If your foundation is Jesus, your inheritance is, is him kept in heaven for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the inheritance we enjoy that Jesus is. He is our all in all. Make him our all in all. Thank you for your mercy. May we hold on to that with every fiber of our being as we face the trials that this life inevitably sets before us. So that even when we're down, and it's okay to weep, it's okay to, to tremble, it's okay to cry out, my God, my God, just as our beloved Savior did. It's okay to do that, but even in the midst of that, we have a hope that no suffering can overwhelm. Grant us that gift, not because we deserve it, but because of your mercy in Jesus we pray, amen.